do that, we have hired a director of operations. Now, some people confuse that with adult ministries pastor, and I don't want to have that confusion. And so uh, Joe Flores is his name, pastor down at Murraysville Alliance Church. He's going to start here in a few weeks, and he will be director of operations, which will take care of IT and finance and facilities and some of those things. Bob and I are still on the journey of looking through resumes for pastor of, op- or pastor of adult ministries, and we would really covet your prayers in that. And uh, hopefully in the next few weeks, we'll be able to talk about some of the people that God may be surfacing to the top in that. And we'll obviously keep you informed. A lot of good things God is doing. And last Sunday morning, your response to everything we shared at the end, to be honest with you, it was overwhelming. And we're so unbelievably grateful of your support, your prayers, and your encouragement to us as we continue our journey together. I want to ask you an honest question. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment because all of you are a member at some point are or have been a member of a family, right? We all are members of a family. I want to ask you this question. I want you to think through it carefully before you answer. How many of you have been able to get every single member of your family to agree with every decision you've ever made? I want you to raise your hand. Every member of your family to agree with every decision you've ever made. None of you? Certainly, your kids have agreed with most of the decisions you've made, right? Now, imagine what it's like to pull families together who are coming from different contexts to plan a wedding or plan a family reunion or plan a funeral. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand on this, but if you raise or work in or oversee a family business where you've got different entities of the family coming together to be a part of that business, you have, I'm sure, already found it to be a fascinating journey, right? To try to get different members of the family who look at life and all of those things different from one another to agree on every decision you've ever made. In my years of ministry, I've seen the best and the worst in family relationships at either a wedding or a funeral. Now, sometimes they're awesome. I had one yesterday that was phenomenal. And I've had over the last few weeks, but I have, in all of my years of ministry, seen as families work together for either a wedding or a funeral, some of the most amazing synergy that comes together and some really tense moments. You're not sure who you end up going to be doing the funeral for by the time it's all said and done. Now, what I want you to do is to extrapolate that out. If indeed you are a part of a family and you've never been able to please every single member of your family, whatever it is that you're doing, I want you to extrapolate that out a moment and imagine how hard it is to please every member of a church family. Right? How many people do you think I have in my family? A thousand. Eighteen hundred that actually claim they're a part of Community Alliance Church. You imagine what it's like to make sure that every single member of my family is happy with every decision we've ever made. Someone said when two or three gather together in Jesus' name, there's going to be conflict at one point or the other. Now, that's not how the verse goes. But if we're really honest, that does happen. When you bring people together from all walks of life and different backgrounds, it's bound to happen at times. There's bound to be some tension, some conflict, things that arise, some needs that don't get met. It's inevitable. It happened in the early church It still happens today. Have your sermon notes there this morning. I want you to take them out. I love expository preaching, which is taking a book of the Bible and walking our way through it. I I wouldn't change it as long as I'm here. That's what God is asking me to continue to do. 
What, what is difficult sometimes is you have some of the most amazing sections of Scripture and you get to deal with them once, maybe twice, in a lifetime of a ministry opportunity in a given church. Acts is phenomenal. Some incredible things. I wish five years from now I could do Acts all over again. It's such a great book. Philippians, James, some of those that I've only had the opportunity to do once here are some incredible books. And Acts has some unbelievable things in it. And in our journey, I want to give you sermon notes so that you can walk through it and take some time on your own to see the great things that God wants to teach us out of that book. This section of Scripture is phenomenal, especially where it's placed. Nationally known Christian researcher George Barna made this statement years ago. He said, leading a church is the most difficult organization on the planet to lead. Now, naturally, I look at that and go, you bet, brother. Now, everyone would. In your organization, you've got hundreds of employees, thousands of employees at times, and trying to get them all together, I understand that. But Barna said, leading a church, one of the toughest kinds to lead. He gives six reasons. I have them in your sermon notes this morning. You're working primarily with a voluntary labor force. I mean, just to run our children's ministry on a Sunday morning, there are 110 people. 110 people just to run children's ministry on a Sunday morning. We had 145 that came and helped us with Bible school. And two of them were paid. There's a lot of volunteers that work and do ministry, and the only way to accomplish that is to utilize their skills and resources. Secondly, you don't always have enough tangible resources. Not like a business where if you need more money, you sell more products. Thirdly, there's a lack of consensus about what we're trying to accomplish. According to research, when people are asked, what is the number one reason a church exists? Most pastors said to reach the lost. Most people in the pew said to meet my needs. Now, that's pretty different from one another. And you try to get consensus in that context, it makes it tough. Number four, it's very difficult to measure success or transformation. How do you measure how well you're doing? Sheer numbers? Variety of ministries? How do you measure success at a church? Fifth, there's no long-term obligation for anyone to stay in a given church. I've said it before. I've used it in other contexts. There are a couple of signs when I moved to Butler. It says we're a church-going community, and basically that means we've been to all of them. When we get frustrated with one, we go to another. There's a lot of great churches. When I do membership class, I ask people, why us? Because there are a lot of really great churches in town. Some incredible people, incredible pastors, very gifted and very passionate. This week I had the opportunity to meet with people from probably about a dozen different churches in town about meeting needs in our community and how we can best work together as congregations. And I was just overwhelmed at how passionate they were to follow Christ, to introduce people to Jesus. There's some great churches here. And a lot of people have every once in a while gravitated from one to the other depending on either needs or the relationship or the age of their children or what the situations are. And number six, you're fighting a a battle on two fronts. Sometimes it's visible. Even though Paul said we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, sometimes it seems like that. But he also says in that scripture, you need to understand that you're fighting even a broader battle, a bigger battle. In Ephesians chapter six, Satan doesn't want the church to exist. You do know that, right? Satan doesn't want church people to be happy. Satan doesn't want a church to go well. Satan doesn't want churches to function well. And he's out to do everything he can to two entities, the family, which he's doing a really good job, sadly enough, at destroying a lot of families, and he's out to destroy the church because he knows the influence that the church can have on the world. It's not an issue of if it occurs, it's when, and how do we respond to it. 
If we see it as an opportunity instead of an attack, we can learn from it and continue to grow. I love the fact that in Acts chapter 6, with all the amazing things going on, some conflict arises. Think about it for a moment. Put yourself in the place of the apostles. People are coming to faith in Christ by the hundreds. Miracles are taking place. People are raising up. A lame guy who had been lame forever walks and rises and greets and sings and celebrates. Hundreds of people's needs are being met. It is an unbelievable moment. Supernatural signs and wonders are taking place. Angels show up just when you need one. I mean, the story is incredible. And all of a sudden, right in the middle of that, comes Acts chapter 6. Oh, by the way, someone's upset. I thought, that's amazing, God. I'd have left that out. If I were talking about the story of your church, I just want everybody to believe that it went incredibly well. That they never faced a problem and never faced an issue. God is unbelievably honest about how his family, read the Old Testament and the New Testament, functions. And is really honest about things that take place. In Acts chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is extremely honest about how difficult it is sometimes to be in ministry. Probably more honest in Corinthians than any other section of Scripture. By the time you get to 2 Corinthians in chapter 6, he said, I just want you to know some of the difficulties are faced. And he begins to list them out. One of the things he says is, I spent a lot of sleepless nights. A couple of weeks ago, probably about three or four weeks ago now, I had a couple of those. Some sleepless nights over the church. That's exactly what Paul said. I got up early in the morning and I sat out on a chair that I normally do when I'm early and began to think about where we are as a church and what God's doing in this section of Scripture because I knew it was coming up in a few weeks. And I began to think about these guys having some people come to them really upset with the fact their needs weren't getting met. And all of a sudden I found myself with a pen and a piece of paper. I began to write down on a tablet some of the things that people have been upset about me for the last number of days. Or weeks, probably a year or two. And and the list was pretty endless. And it was fascinating. I just kept writing faster and faster. I couldn't keep up with my hand. Uh, Some wanted a Saturday night service. I didn't shake their hand, didn't call them when their mother died, couldn't do their daughter's wedding, didn't visit them in the hospital. They wanted more topical sermons. I used a reference to the Wizard of Oz once. I got a letter about that. I thought it was fascinating. Didn't announce their ministry, didn't announce their ministry enough. Disappointed with my lack of altar calls. Talked too much about the Holy Spirit. Talked too little about the Holy Spirit. Talked about my weaknesses too much. I should be perfect. And the list was endless. And I began to look at that and I thought, that's true. All of them are. Pretty much every week or every other week, I've disappointed somebody somewhere along the way. Never intentionally. Just know what happens. And then I came to this section of Scripture and I thought, so did they. (laughs) 2,000 years ago, in the midst of all the amazing things God was doing, Acts chapter 6 is right in the middle of it. Let's read it, will you? You're in your Bibles, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. I love the fact that Luke points it out. you got sermon notes and your Bible. It may be on the screen, but I really want you to be in the Word of God. In those days, what days? Those days. When God was doing some amazing things, miraculous was taking place, signs and wonders. When the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained 
against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We'll turn that responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. The proposal seemed pleased to please the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Philip, Prochorius, Nicotar, Timon, Parmesius, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed over them and laid their hands on them. And so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. One of the interesting sidebars to what's going on here in this particular section of Scripture is how Luke over and over again begins to document and celebrate the number of people that are coming to faith in Christ. We do that every once in a while with a slide on the screen. Years ago, we did it with the cross in our old sanctuary, and we wanted to do it here, but when the cross was unlit, you couldn't even see it. So now we have a slide on the screen that says someone has begun their journey of faith in Christ, and we celebrate that. And I love the fact, in this context, all the way through the book of Acts, Luke celebrates that. Acts 2, 3,000 came to Christ. Acts two forty seven day by day. Acts 4, 5,000. Acts 5, more than ever. 9, 13, 16, 19. I mean, it's exciting to see what God is doing here and the people that are coming to faith in Christ. Sometimes pastors are criticized for being excited about numbers as if that's all we care about. What I constantly remind people is it's not about numbers, it's lives. It's people being changed and we want to celebrate that, that they're on their journey with God, that they have literally found the answers to life in the midst of all the things that are out there. They came to the one answer to life itself in Jesus. And you want to celebrate that fact. Now you add to this all the things that are taking place, hundreds coming to faith in Christ, miracles, signs and wonders, healings, angels rescuing them from jail. These are unbelievable days. The book of Acts would have made a great movie, wouldn't it? I'd watch that. They face the supreme court of their day, supernatural events taking place seemingly all the time. Whatever it was, it definitely wasn't ordinary or mundane. And then you get to six. And to be honest with you, I'm glad he recorded that event. It's nice to know that in the midst of all of those incredible things taking place, that these guys are dealing with everyday issues. Things that I have to deal with. People being upset, needs not being met. Someone slipping through the cracks. Acts 6.1 again, in those days the number of disciples were increasing and the Hellenistic Jews among them complained to the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. When I read that section of scripture over again in a quiet morning, I imagined in my mind this dear little Jewish lady coming up to Peter and John, grabbing Peter by the ear. If you've ever been in Jerusalem, they're wonderful at that. Grabbing Peter by the ear, just simply saying, young man, You may think things are going really well here and God is doing some amazing things, but I want you to know I'm not getting enough food. Now, it's wonderful to see all the things that are going on, but I want you to know somehow we're getting overlooked. Do you know James? By the way, James is a brother of Jesus, Peter. Do you know him? Because he says real religion is taking care of widows and orphans. And you're not doing that. James, a brother of Jesus, a nice young man. I think you need to listen to him more. Now, It probably didn't go that way, but I pictured it in my mind, this dear, sweet lady coming up to Peter. Now, if you're going to take on somebody, Peter is a guy I probably wouldn't do that to. But coming up to Peter and saying, look, 
I get all that God's doing. This is awesome. But I want you to know, my needs aren't getting met. Now, the problem in this text is that the Hellenistic Jews, specifically the Grecian Jews, may have been overlooked. If you remember back to chapter 2 and 4, they were distributing food and money to people who had needs that were there. But obviously what you see here is that some people's needs weren't getting met. Now these people also were from North Africa, Asia Minor, not necessarily from Jerusalem and Palestine. And there could have been, maybe, I'm not saying, but there could have been even some discrimination going on here. Not sure. Because simply be an oversight. Maybe if we equate it to any church when a, a long time or someone who's been in the same church for a long period of time has a need that gets overlooked. And they can respond in one of two ways. We can either ignore other needs to meet that one and that one only or only minister to new people because it's fun to have new people come in and ignore the one who's been around for a while. Now, part of the problem here is sheer numbers. And these guys are overwhelmed with growth. Think in your head. Now, I hear it all the time. One of the things we did for our 100th anniversary, it's hard to believe that we're next year, 2015, we're going to celebrate 110 years old. This church will be 110 years old in 2015. That's just fascinating. 100th anniversary, we gathered together at the Butler Auditorium. Now we're running out of places to be able to accommodate everyone. And we had all three services come together in the same place. People were overwhelmed with who would be going to their church for such a long period of time. I didn't know you went here. I didn't know you went here. I didn't know you went here. Man, I was at the country club last night for a wedding. The chef came out and said, hey, Denny, how are you doing? I go to your church. I'm going, sir, I didn't know that. I'm leaving. And the guy opened the door and said, hey, Denny, did you do the wedding? I'm like, yes, sir, I did. <laughs> it's fascinating when you look at just sheer numbers how many people are a part of this context here. Growth is overwhelming. And we gathered together that day, and all three services came together, and people were blown away by the people that go to our church because they didn't know that. They were in another service. Even now with two. You don't know who goes to the 1045 service in most cases. And here they are with thousands of people coming. And every once in a while, you've got to believe that someone's going to slip through the cracks. When I teach membership class, one of the last sessions, there are four segments of that class. We do it mostly in four hours and one hour each segment. One of the last segments are two questions that I deal with. What are your expectations of us? And then the second one, I'll tell you what our expectations of you are. If you're going to join Community Alliance, these are our expectations. And you have to decide whether you want to embrace them. When it comes to what are your expectations of us, I say, I want you to be really honest. What do you expect from us? And then I'll tell them whether or not we can meet it because I want them to know. I'm not going to join an organization and find out they can't meet my expectations and I didn't know that up front. And so I, I tell them. And one of the things we talk about, uh, about joining a large church is sometimes... You will be gone for two or three or four weeks, and no one will know. It's not because we don't care. It's sometimes based on sheer numbers or multiple services. It's difficult. Not that anyone does it intentionally, but sometimes in large churches, it, does, it happens. Not all needs get met. It's not like in a small church when everyone knows them, and everyone knows everybody, and all of it happens, which is one of the reasons why 80% of the churches in America are 100 or less. Two reasons. One, everybody likes the family atmosphere, being able to know everyone. Now, there's the downside to that. Everyone knows my name. Everyone knows everything about me. And that's the, the amount of people that one pastor can usually meet with or meet the needs of. 
that somewhere along the way we made the assumption that the church exists to meet my needs instead of reaching the loss and discipling new believers. Now, by saying that, it doesn't mean we ignore the needs. Just try to find a balance. And in this case here, it's a necessary to get organized. There are a number of reactions that anyone can have to all of these, and I have some of them in your sermon notes this morning. And I want you to think through the process of how the disciples could have responded and then eventually how they did respond. Sometimes when grumbling or complaining takes place, there's a tendency to get defensive. Peter and John could have said, do these people see what's going on? I mean, don't they get the fact that God's doing some amazing things? I'm talking about signs and wonders and healings and people coming to Christ. We're just, I'm just still trying to heal, Peter could have said, from the beating I just took a couple of weeks ago. And they're worried about food baskets? They could have thought that. I could have. They also could have a tendency to hear complaints as a voice of the enemy or an enemy. Or at least to view them as unspiritual. Thinking things like, these people aren't as committed to what God's doing. They grumble about everything. Now that could be true, but I doubt it. They could have thought that. See, we always can't see complaints as attacks from the enemy. Sometimes I find pastors and churches over-spiritualize everything. I've actually heard pastors say, we must be doing something right. Look at what the enemy is doing. And that could be very, very true. You're going to be shocked by this statement, though. There are some pastors who do some really dumb things and then pay the dumb price for doing those dumb things. I don't know that you know any. But is that, isn't that shocking to you? That there are some pastors that do some really dumb things and then pay the dumb tax. We, we go to a large church network every year in January, and we gather around the room with pastors of churches our size, and it's one of the greatest blessings I've ever had in all my life. We go every single year, Bob and I go, and our wives, and we interact with one another. We're all facing the same issues and the same problems, and one of the sessions is, what did you learn from the dumbest thing you did this year? Because you've already paid the dumb tax. We don't want to do it. And what happens is that sometimes pastors over-spiritualize things by saying, well, we must be doing the right thing. Look at what the enemy is doing. You could be, and that could be, or you just really did a dumb thing, and now you're paying a price. These people had a legitimate need. Maybe it didn't look as big as the needs around them, but by expressing the need, it didn't make them the voice of the enemy. Another reaction could have been to ignore it, just to leave it alone and hope it will go away. For those of us, now I'm saying us, for those of us who do not like conflict or confrontation, that's the choice many of us will make. I have said on a number of occasions, I will go to the dentist and have my teeth pulled without Novocaine before I have to confront someone. Any of you like that? You just soon as it goes away, I I just don't want to deal with it. I don't want to have an, I am a horrible arguer. I grew up with family, we're uh, European family, and loud and boisterous, and they argued about everything. And I was the one who said, I don't want to do that. What I found is that it began to master my personality. And so I, because of all the arguments that took place for a number of reasons in a large family like that, I chose to be the opposite. And now I cringe when I have to confront or, or deal with a confrontation. I, I literally, I just pull my teeth. You know, do a root canal without Novocaine, whatever. Just don't make me confront them for something. 
And it could have made them feel that way. But by doing that, by ignoring it, can make people feel that their need is insignificant. And by that, you make them feel insignificant. And that can really hurt. If I've ever made you feel that way, please let me know. Because I really want to apologize. Now, you've got to remember that just by bringing something up it didn't, it, that didn't change because you brought it up doesn't mean it was ignored. It didn't just agree with what was brought up. You ever hear this phrase, no one listens to me? Your kids tell you that all the time, right? No one listens to me. You know that's not true. You know why? Because they listened. They heard it over and over and over again. They heard it. Well, say no one listens to me because of what? They didn't do what I wanted them to do. That's different than no one listens to me. Sometimes we do that in contexts that are broader than just family. Listen, we just didn't do the change. Now, of course, there's another reaction that could have come, which is just as dangerous as ignoring the problem, and that is in your sermon notes, the apostles could have felt compelled to personally deal with every need, for them to go to every one of these widows and make sure their needs were met. Pastors for years have misused the verse when Paul says, I want to be all things to all people. That's within the context of doing whatever is necessary to reach those who are lost and bring them to faith in Christ. The pastors have taken that verse. I have done it. almost killed me a few years ago to try to do all things for all men and be all things for all people. And it's impossible. If the mentality of the early church was the only way I could be ministered to effectively but by being ministered to by one of the twelve, that if I don't get prayed for by Peter, it doesn't count. If that mentality would have been part of the congregation, three things would have happened. Number one, these guys would have died long before the Romans ever got hold of them. Secondly, the number of people they touched personally would be very small. And what the apostles were called and gifted to do would not have gotten done. Now I want to add another response. One that the people could have had. And that is to make an assumption that the apostles didn't care. Or that no one cared. And and that could have happened. But it didn't. And that was never the issue. Through the years, I've heard pastors hurt by things that were said and innuendos that were made and concerns that were really not legitimate by, without going to them, talking about them. Now, I, honestly, I've been blessed. I, Billy and I have talked about that for a number of years, even before he, when he announced yesterday or last Sunday morning, and we talked about it uh, before that when he and I first had this conversation. And I said, Bill, I'm one of the I, I, I'm with you. I'm one of the rare pastors that have had 37 years of ministry in four incredible churches. I have literally been blessed in every, from Newcastle to Beaverdale down to by Johnstown to Cottersport to now my 19 years here. I couldn't be happier, and I couldn't be more blessed. I heard the same thing Bill heard when he talked about it last week, what happens at churches and what happens sometimes at pastors and in this church and other churches in years gone by, but I'm telling you, I'm hoping by God's amazing grace, I finished my career here. I love this place. But I have known a lot of pastors who have been hurt a lot by people that have said things that weren't true or information that wasn't found out or verified and hurt. And it really is a difficult thing to walk around. Now, the apostles, apostles could have abandoned prayer, ministry of the word, which was what released the power of God to wait on tables, Or they could have ignored waiting on tables and became ivory tower preachers, totally out of touch with the needs of the people around them. They're at a really critical juncture here. 
What do they do? Preach the word or wait on tables? And the answer I want to share with you this morning is both. Number one, they determined the validity and, of the issue and determined to resolve it. They didn't ignore it. They recognized it as a legitimate need. Now, not all are, you know. I've never, ever had anybody come to me as a pastor in all of my years saying, this is a really dumb idea, but you ought to try it anyhow. Every idea that anybody's ever brought to me is good. They think it's going to change the kingdom, and, and I get all of that. And these guys have the responsibility of trying to sort out, which is a huge responsibility, what problems are real, what needs can we meet, what ministries can we do, how can we best function within the context of our gifts and our abilities, and how can we determine which needs and concerns are legitimate and which aren't, and which ones can we do and which ones can't we do. They also, number two, avoided the tendency to address the issue themselves. How? It's listed out in verse 2. Twelve gathered the disciples together and said, look, we need to put some boundaries around our time. We only have so much. We only have so much energy, and we know what God's called us to do, so we have to decide what it is that we need to do, what are our priorities, and what ministries can we give to other people. They recognized it as a legitimate need. They just realized they couldn't, at the expense of what their priorities were, meet them all. One of the most fascinating verses in all the New Testament is in John 17 when Jesus in his high priestly prayer looked up to the Father and said, Father, I've completed everything you've sent me here to do. Think about that phrase for a moment. In three years of ministry with thousands and thousands of people who still needed healed, hundreds of thousands who still hadn't come to faith in Christ, needs that were overwhelming, Jesus made the statement, Father, I have completed everything you sent me here to do. Do you realize the magnitude of that phrase? He understood who he was, what his call was, what he could personally do and accomplish, and how to hand it off to other people. And then he knew at that point, I have done what you've asked me to do. Not what everybody expects me to do, what everybody thinks I should do, but what you have called me to do. And that to me is an incredibly releasing phrase. If Jesus could come to the end of his ministry here on earth and make that statement, that ought to be a statement that every person who serves Christ in whatever capacity that may be, whether it be in what I do or what anybody in this congregation does. Father, I know what you called me to do. I know what my limitations are. I know what my gifting is. And I'm going to do what you called me to accomplish. And I want to live with that. That was one of the most freeing phrases I ever came across in all the New Testament. Paul said to Timothy, a young preacher, look, there are many needs. Your priorities, read the Scripture, teach the Scripture, and apply the Scripture. Now, what do we do? How do we maintain our priorities and how do we still wait on tables? We begin to share the ministry with others. And that's exactly what they do here in, in, in verses 3 to 5. They take the focus off of them, choose seven men from among you who are full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom, and I want you to give it to them. Some think that this is the first deacon board, and honestly, I don't think it is. Choosing seven was a cultural thing. And you'll notice that their function wasn't limited to just waiting on tables or ministering to widows. Stephen, one of the ones that are chosen, I'm going to talk about when I come back after vacation in August. The man was stoned to death, not because he didn't know how to clean up a table well. 
He was stoned to death because he was preaching the gospel in really powerful and profound ways. The same word is used in chapter 2 and verse 4. It means servant. Both the seven and the apostles were servants of the body. They functioned that way, distributing food, preaching the word. Their functions weren't limited to one thing. They continue to do what it is that God's asked them to do. And they, in your sermon notes, spread the needs around and spread the ministry around. One of the responsibilities of a, a pastor is to necessarily and to locate those who have the certain gifts to serve, whatever those skills may be. Recognize people who are full of faith and the Spirit. Release them for ministry. Notice again the qualifications for ministry here. Full of faith and full of the Spirit. Not the skills that the world looks for. People who are full of faith and full of the Spirit. Our job, minister of the Word of God. Pray, wait on tables, look for Phillips, look for Stevens, look for Phoebes, look for Chloe's. The verse used here is referred specifically to men in chapter 4 here, or 6 here, but by the time you get to Romans 16, the same word is used for women serving in ministry. New Testament section, I think it's in your sermon notes, Ephesians chapter 4. He said, I, I've given some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to prepare God's people to effectively do works of ministry. Problems and needs never go away. Disappointment, needs being unmet, never go away. If it's been around for 2,000 years, it's probably not going to go away. The issue is always, how do we respond to it? How do we react? How do we take it personally? How do we not take it personally? And how do we address the issues and be really honest about what the resolutions may be? I know not everyone's going to agree with every decision we've ever made, just like it doesn't happen in your family. But if we really believe that God has called us together, as these gentlemen did, and that God is committed to pouring out His Spirit in really powerful and profound ways, then we want to do everything we can to always seek His wisdom, give others the benefit of the doubt, and do everything we can to maintain unity in the bond of peace. With all the issues that have surfaced over the last few weeks, I couldn't be more delighted with you as a church. You've been overwhelming. Got to believe you've got a lot of questions and you're wondering some things. But I couldn't be happier with where you are, with where we are, and how you've responded to all of the changes. I really couldn't. You've done it with grace, you've done it with honesty. You've done it with class, at least the ones that have come to me. And I couldn't be more happier to be a part of this family. And I couldn't be more happier to honestly say, my prayer and my hope is to finish my career with this church family. And we trust that God will continue to deepen our walk with him and our resolve to do the best we know how, to continue to meet the needs of the people who still don't know the Christ that you and I have found. And do it well and do it effectively, knowing that we will not do it perfect, but to be able to give God the glory in the midst of all of it. Look at the results when they did it this way. I mean, look at verse 7. You can't ignore verse 7. They recognized the issue. They dealt with the problem. They did the best they knew how. They listened to the voice of God. They shared the ministry needs around. Look at what verse 7 says. And God continued to what? Grow the church. God continued to bless they handled conflict 
in a biblical way, and the church began to grow. I trust that's true of us. I feel it is, and I'm just blessed to be your pastor and trust you feel that you can as well be blessed by what God is doing here. I am absolutely convinced to the depth of my being that God is positioning us for an amazing future. And I'm just excited to see what he's going to do. Father, I love these sections of Scripture. Could have been easily been ignored, but it wasn't, and you dealt with it honestly. And Father, as we walk through this as a family of God and changes and challenges, as a church family, we're going to deal with some of the same issues. And so, Father, help us to respond as the apostles did, to not react and to not hurt, but to do everything we can for the glory of God and the ministry of the church. Thank you for the privilege of being a part of your family. Sometimes it's messy, sometimes it's hard, sometimes it's uncertain, but I am so delighted that I am a part of the family of God, and I'm really delighted that I'm a part of the CAC family. Continue to bless us as we follow after you. May your glory and grace abound in really amazing ways as we listen to your voice and follow after you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.